Hi everyone, this is Nate Sheets with the It's a Brain Thing podcast. We're going to be taking a break this week, but we wanted to re-air an old interview that I did with FASD advocate RJ Formanek. This was back when the podcast was called the Cognitive Support Podcast, and we wanted to re-air it because those all of those old episodes went away. So um, we hope that you enjoy it. If you've already listened to it, I highly recommend listening to it again. There's a lot of good stuff there, and we will see you guys next week. So we're talking to RJ today, and RJ Formanic is the head administrator of a Facebook group called Flying with Broken Wings, and he's yeah. the spokesperson for Red Shoes Rock Stop FASD, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. He's a public speaker and trainer and a graduate of the Anishinaabek Education Institute. Institute, yeah. So the Anishinaabek Education Institute, and he provides support to all kinds of caregivers, but especially to caregivers of people with FASD and, of course, to many people with FASD themselves. So thanks for coming on, RJ. So what I wanted to first ask you about, we're going to talk about kind of your history and getting the diagnosis and just some aspects of living with FASD, especially from a cognitive skill level. Um, And then we'll talk about your various projects, which I'll encourage all my listeners to follow and support you in. Well, I appreciate that. So I know that around the age of 14, you were placed in foster care and you live in Canada. We should note that. In that first year, you went to 13 different foster homes. Can you tell us what was going on to make those common changes in placement happen? Were there specific behaviors? Um, what was going on to require so many placements for you? Well, I was probably the most unlikable kid in town. Mm. Um, I, I lived in a town of about 10,000 people. And um, there had been, I'd been living with my grandparents at that point, And it had gotten to the point there had been a lot of emotional blow-ups and a lot of things were said that had really, really... Uh, sort of gotten my hackles up about Mm -hmm. me so i had that going on and uh i got got into a little trouble in the summer that i turned uh 13 and uh, i broke into a house and stole a car and a whole bunch of other things like that and got caught Mm -hmm. so i was going to court and it was just all of these life-changing events that once happened and uh, my grandfather was, I think, 78 at the time. And mm. um, I just knew that, you know, they couldn't put up with me. And so I started running away. And when I started running away, they had nowhere to turn but uh, what was then known as Children's Aid Services. Right. And sh- Children's Aid stepped in. And um, I became what I called a garbage bag kid. Um, uh, mm-hmm. What little clothing I hadn't carried with me went into a green garbage bag, and uh, I just hopped into the worker's car and went to somebody else's house. Wow. And we should note that at this point, 
you were not diagnosed with an FASD. No, my diagnosis came when I was 47. So right. anything that happened before that was, you know, um, something that I had to own. Right. Wow. And try and, you know, work into trying to convince myself I was a viable human being mm -hmm. while doing these things that even I didn't, didn't understand. Right. And then so I hope this doesn't happen anymore. But after this first year, from what I understood, Canada essentially emancipated you. So it was like you were 14. They emancipated well, you. What was what was that all about? Um, there have been a number of people who have um, looked at that. And um, basically, it was a very small children's aid service unit in a small area mm -hmm. with no other options. Took a legal option that was rarely ever used. And that was to make me an adult because they honestly had nowhere else to send me. Wow. So so that was, you know, their last ditch option, because with that option, I could be jailed. Right. So at least I had somewhere to go. If it something else of, happened. Yeah. And okay. it was, you know, it was sort of like the ultimate worst safety net, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, of course, me, you know, I was 15 years old. Hey, I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want. And right. it was chaos. It was chaos. But um, luckily, I was put into a group home. And this was a, an adult group home. And uh, my probation officer actually set this up. And this is the most life-changing thing that ever happened to me. He was going into an adult group home where the woman, I swear, she understood brain dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Maybe not FASD specifically, but she left me alone and let me process and work things out. And if it took a long time, um, she even let me stay. Um, I aged out at 18. I was still staying with her um, and basically only, you know, getting part-time jobs and occasionally paying rent up until I was 23. So she let me stay an extra five years. And, and that was actually kind of one of my questions for you. And you're, um, you had an interview with Jeff Noble in 2015, and you mentioned this group home. So you were emancipated around the age of 15. How old were you when you went to this group home? And you kind of mentioned some of it so far, but what were the specific things that helped you? So you, you said that she gave you time to process. Were there any specific ways that she would respond, like when you were struggling, that were helpful? Essentially, what was working here that wasn't working in all those foster placements? Um, one of the things that I talk about a lot of times that I found that she did that worked was she would ask me, "What, what's going on? What are you thinking? What do you see? You know, mm -hmm. ask my experience. And I wasn't actually used to that because most people of course, um, rely on the judgment of others who were there or their own preconceived notions of something, right. assuming it's willful misbehavior as opposed to somebody who doesn't understand is just asking everyone to stop and tell them what's going on. Mm -hmm. They're two different things, and she could see that, but other people couldn't. Right. So um, she sort of um, and worked with me and tried to explain she tried to explain the neurotypical world to me at the same time because mm -hmm. I would tell her, I don't understand. And she would try to, you know, make it make sense to me. Yeah. So neurotypical, um, I don't know if we discussed this on the podcast, but that's just the term we use for people who don't have 
kind of neurological differences or maybe classified as a disability. So that would be me. Um, or most of the general population absolutely. generally. Right. And yeah. so, okay, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that. And then also, you know, several years go by. So this this group home, and specifically, it wasn't really the home, but it was the person mm-hmm. who helped you. And then you ended up, you know, you worked in television, you got married. Um, you're welcome to tell us anything you want about that. But my question has to do um, with your divorce, um, which you also mentioned in your uh, interview with Jeff Noble. Um, and you said that the divorce, when it happened, so you're an adult now, still no FASD diagnosis. It was unexpected, but the biggest issue was that while you were with your wife, she worked as your external brain, which is kind of the terminology we use in a lot of FASD circles to have somebody help with those skills. So can you explain um, to our listeners what you mean by external brain personally and how specifically your wife helped you? And then do you have anybody in your life today who still gives you some of those supports? Well, the external brain is, um, and in, in that particular case, um, was someone who is who knows me well enough and I know well enough that I can trust their judgment when I turn to them and have questions. And sometimes the questions are, you know, based on what is really going on, its interpretations, its opinions. Sometimes it's just someone to talk to. So it's like someone that you can trust mm-hmm. and it's 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 a very safe feeling knowing you can say anything to this person and they can understand or at least attempt to understand and that helps mm-hmm. so the external brain is um, some people call it a mentor but for us often just because of the way our brains work and the way we kind of hook up with people it's often a one-on-one thing it mm-hmm. can't be a stranger it has to be that precise hookup between two personalities and that would be an external brain and that's like the best friend you can ever have and yes today i do have a very very great friend she's been a friend of mine now for oh 15 years and Mm -hmm. it was her in fact who um convinced me to get the diagnosis in the first place I'd gone through the mental health system and I've had this diagnosis. I have what's called alphabet soup. Mm-hmm. I've like 26 letters that follow my <laughs> name and they're just crazy. Okay. And the problem is um, with that type of, um, it's sort of a shotgun diagnosis. If you right. have most of the um, points on a list, they'll say, well, okay, it's got to be this because you have most of these. But the point that they're missing is the things that we don't have, those commonalities. Mm-hmm. Now, those add up. And mm-hmm. it turns out that with FASD, you can have something that looks like, you know, OCD. But it's right. not necessarily OCD. It's FASD that presents that way. Yep. So getting the diagnosis totally um, changed my life because that alphabet soup, it, literally the letters went into the soup and they're mm-hmm. gone. Right. And uh, now it's FASD. So I have, you know, signs of reactive stuff um, or uh, signs of this or a little bit of this. I have tendencies, but they're all based on the brain damage. And that's the important thing is, especially for me, understanding is when I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And having somebody that you trust to explain it to you and that you just have to kind of trust them. I, I would imagine that would be very difficult, at least for me, to trust somebody else just to interpret whatever's going on for me or to give me some clues um the next step is Mm -hmm. actually fight or flight it Mm -hmm. yeah it's 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 
you, it's not a safe feeling to have to do that. So it's it's sort of tinged with a little bit of um, anxiety, right? Always because it has to be that way. We, you know, I'd love to understand what goes on sometimes. Sometimes, um, yeah, I'd like the guy who walks out into traffic looking the other way, kind of thing. It's just don't not there. <laughs> yeah, just... I mean, and, and having this conversation with you, even I think, and people listening, you know, one of the I think unique elements of FASD is how it's such an invisible disability. I mean, if we were to talk on the phone about anything, you know, unless I am acutely being aware of how your cognitive skills work for you specifically, Mm -hmm. you know, like I would just get swept up in the conversation. I might not give you enough time to process. And that's what I try to tell parents all the time is we forget even with people that we know very well. Um, I mean, cause yeah, talking to you here, you know, I feel like I'm just having a typical conversation, which obviously I am. Um, but there's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on differently in both of our brains. And um, if I can point this out, I'm actually always aware of all of this stuff going on. It's almost mm -hmm. like having Google Translate in your mind. Okay. So you say something, it goes in, and then it goes through this thing, and then I wait a couple of seconds, and the words appear. Wow. So, but it also works the other way around. I have a thought, and to get it to my mouth, it also has to go through that. Sometimes it doesn't really work out so well, and mm -hmm. I misspeak and say things I don't understand or use the wrong inflection. So these things do happen. Wow. Trial and error. <laughs> yeah. So um, just, you know, my personal values, I'm all about the advocates for various, you know, developmental disabilities or physical disabilities or mental health issues. Um, I don't know if you follow any autistic advocates, but there's a lot of autistic advocates, at least mm -hmm. in my mind, compared to FASD advocates. So we know that, you know, alcohol consumption during pregnancy is one of the number one causes of intellectual disabilities in the whole world. So I'm wondering why we don't have more advocates. Do you think there are, or I'm, I guess I'll just ask you, what are some challenges for you and what you would imagine would be challenges for others with FASD and being an advocate? And in the autism community, we have roadblocks. I mean, there are, um, there's oftentimes like kind of this parent, autistic parent versus the autistic people kind of mentality. I don't pick up on that too much with our community, but are, are there sometimes roadblocks either by certain groups of people or just certain issues and people who don't understand? Well, hands down, I would say um, the stigma involving alcohol and pregnancy. Mm -hmm. um, that builds up such a huge wall that even talking about the results of that, just taking that out of the conversation completely, mm -hmm. um, no judgment, you know, it's happened. Okay, we start from the alcohol consumption, not the before. And we don't judge it. Right. And people can't get past that point. And it's, it often goes back to guilt. Um, people think you're accusing. If you offer, you can't offer ethically a diagnosis of FASD to someone because, in essence, you're saying you're sort of giving the idea that you're saying their mother drank. Right. So it's a really, really difficult area. The stigma around maternal drinking is a huge roadblock to getting people to open up and understand that, you know, we're not from Mars and we're mm -hmm. not that 
much different. Right. But we do have these things that we need where often we just don't understand. And when we don't understand and we get scared, we stop and we'll fight mm-hmm. to stop. And that's how we end up in jail. Right. And things like that. And uh, that's the big thing is not being able to talk about it because of the stigma. Wow. And being male myself, I, I've never actually been confronted with it, but I feel that there's sort of, you know, something that a woman living with FASD could maybe get a message across to women better than I could. Mm. And I'm not saying that I've ever felt, you know, oh, you're a guy, what do you know? Or um, you're just, you know, a, I hate this word, a victim. But a lot of people mm-hmm. look at it that way of it. But no, I'm I'm just thinking just relation, the, the way men talk to men, the way women talk to women, I think, you know, could be better than I can do. However, at this point, like you said, there aren't a lot of public FASD advocates out there. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's just a matter of finding the one that kind of works with your communication style. And and if we had more people, then, you know, we'd get more awareness out there. It's funny because I've, I've only really thought of the stigma in terms of the mother, um, because I very rarely in my work actually encounter biological mothers. Um, mm-hmm. They're usually kids that are usually in foster care or adopted. But it's kind of weird. I never even occurred like for you, if you're talking to an adult who's struggling to bring that up to them, that that stigma would actually carry over to the actual kiddo, though, who might be an adult by the time we talk to them about it. Like, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. There, I mean, there's a huge stigma. And I, you know, the biological moms that I do work with, like, I try to make it very clear, like, you know, you have no judgment from me because, you know, I just start with what I got, which is we have the diagnosis and then we move forward. And there really is no judgment. Like, I don't even really take that all into consideration because I have somebody who now is wanting my suggestions and willing to work with me. And I really, as I work with them, just treat them like any other foster family or adoptive family I work with. But Mm -hmm. I'm sure like, you know, just me saying that isn't enough necessarily because they've probably experienced stigma from all of that. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. rough. And, you know, I have never been... I don't want to say interested, but I guess I'll say interested. I've never been interested in the prevention aspect because I know there's a lot of um, FASD organizations out there and they, and they focus on prevention. And I'm sure like mm-hmm. that's where the important work is, but I just don't follow it as much. Do you have any, um, are there any like recent campaigns or maybe organizations that work on prevention that you would recommend that listeners look at or support? Well, I, I do know that um, NoFAS mm-hmm. does um, does a whole lot of work on prevention. They're right. um, big on that. Again, like you, prevention is sort of not my strong suit. Mm-hmm. That's not where I work. I did work in diagnostics, actually, for a couple of years. I was doing um, uh, oh, I, the pre-diagnosis diagnosis. Like, I could refer people. Okay, cool. Um and and things for St. Mike's Hospital out of Toronto and Dr. Brenda Stade, who was the head of the program there then. But um, that's not, again, not an area that I'm necessarily focusing right. on. Okay, cool. And we'll put a link to uh, NoFAS in the description of the show. Um, so my question for you then, it's interesting because when I read advocate blogs, you know, I'm getting a lot of intimate uh, information. Like they'll tell me about 
you know, if they have bipolar disorder and they're autistic, for example, like they'll talk about that. Like they give all of this really, from my perspective, private information, which is helpful for me. But, you know, I want to kind of take a step back and and I see that you do the same thing in the um, Flying Without Wings group and just in your general work. You talk about a lot of these very personal things like your behaviors and your mental health and your emotions and your um, all the support that you need. Is that difficult to do online or is that is it something that you enjoy doing? Is is there any issues with that? Um, it took me a long time to actually drop the defenses enough to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, because at that point, and this is like over five years ago now that I've been doing this, and at that point, nobody else was. Right. Um, and I joined a, a group. Uh, it was an email group, and we could talk to each other. And we were saying these things personally, privately to each other. And I just sort of um, started to think, this is a conversation that needs to get out there. Mm-hmm. So that's why I started a Facebook group. And again, I chose Facebook because it has a chat utility and it also has almost real-time, almost conversational ability. Right. So with that worked into it, um, we were able to grow something to – we're up to 3,300 people right now. And, and this group – we'll talk about uh, um, the group in a second, but is that something that it's okay for caregivers and parents to join, or would you rather that just be something that people with FASD join? Oh, we actually have – and I'm crossing my fingers, knocking on wood – done almost the impossible we try to be a one-stop shop for everybody Um, um, we try to bring again i'm talking about conversations real time Mm -hmm. all people into it if professionals want to throw something in if people living with fasd want to throw their experience in and you know the answers that people get to their questions i sometimes just sit back and i'm totally amazed in this group just started it runs by itself some days, and it's incredible. I I love it. It's it's like a, a dream come true. And for you know, we have people respecting everybody else's right to have their own opinion, right, and their own experience. And that's that is very important. And we really work on that. And you know, we don't enjoy um, confrontational things and stuff like that. And we try to put a stop to all of that as quickly as possible because. Um, everybody has equal voice. Awesome. Yeah. So um, we'll put a link. This We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but that's the Flying Without Broken Wings group that we'll put a link to. Flying, flying with Sorry, Broken Wings. Flying wing. with Broken Wings. My apologies. Um, so let's talk about processing for a moment, the cognitive skill. So in my work with various types of caregivers, parents, foster parents, paid staff, I try to split this term processing into different groups. But ultimately, I describe processing as taking in information kind of in real time while you're doing other things. And you talked a little bit about how when we are speaking to you, there's a little bit of a delay there as your brain translates it. And then, of course, when you want to say something back, probably depending on the subject, I'm assuming there might be a delay there. And that kind of gives us a, uh, you know, an insight into your ability to process. Um, But can you tell us about some of your some of your struggles, not just now, but maybe as a child and maybe some ways that you've improved 
we'll start with your ability to kind of process verbal communication. Is there, other than what you've said before, how has that evolved for you over time? Has it improved at all? Um, in some ways, and some things continually um, rear their ugly head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I hear perfectly well. My ears work okay. But there's a little confabulation that actually goes on in my brain when I don't hear things properly. And um, my brain will take words that I'm not hearing and turn them into words that sound like the sounds I just mm -hmm. heard. That's not good. Um, right. It sort of goes in line, though, with the other problem that goes hand in hand with that is, is um, concrete thinking. Mm -hmm. And when people use terms like pick up your room, to me... I have this vision of somehow going outside, being like a strong man, and picking up part of the house. Mm -hmm. that, that's how my brain naturally works the first time I hear these things. So sometimes that'll slow me down and cause a stutter in the middle of a conversation. Someone will say something that is so non-concrete non <laughs> and just totally out there that it will throw me for a loop for a second. Because that becomes a visual thing for me. I suddenly see it in my mind. Right. And so and I get stuck on And so that. then while you're having this conversation, which is like a real-time conversation, essentially immediate answers, that somebody says something, and does that kind of distract you as you're kind of figuring out what that metaphor meant from what they're – does that distract you from what they're currently saying because all of this is kind of happening all at once? Does it prevent you from being able to catch everything as you're figuring things out? Yes, there's that. I'll have maybe a few second lapse where I'm not hearing what is said directly after that. Wow. Because I'm so busy working on trying to figure out what that initially meant. But there's also, unfortunately, um, an outward thing that happens is my face goes totally impassive and I go glass-eyed. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, you know, people think I'm not listening to them or I'm just zoned out or something and it's actually my gaze is inward at that point and my eyes just sort of look odd hmm. so it, it's sort of a double effect and it it makes um, interpersonal communication interesting and sometimes i have to overcompensate by smiling and things because of those moments hmm. where i suddenly just zzz, gone for a second but i'm really still there just a little behind it's like a loop in the tape that gets caught up kind of thing so if you could suggest something for us, if we were to be interacting with you on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, some of my general suggestions are, you know, when we ask a question, give them time to think, um, visualize mm -hmm. things. What would be for you personally kind of the supports that would be awesome if people just kind of knew to use when talking to you for verbal communication? <sighs> Generally, I'm pretty, pretty good. Um, as long as, you know, if I'm able to, because I'm, I self-advocate, so I will, if someone's talking too fast or something, I'll ask them to slow down. Okay. Because, um, you know, at a certain point, if you're using too many, say, industry-specific terms to someone not from the industry, right. it's just going to become a jumble anyway. So, yeah. Um so were you always good at advocating for that or did it take you a while to kind of understand like that you needed to specifically ask them to slow down or as a kid, did you just kind of look inward while the conversation was going? Like, do you feel like you've improved in this at all? 
Oh, absolutely. Okay. Again, the diagnosis gave me the words to be able to say to mm -hmm. someone, stop, I have a brain injury. Um, up until that point, if it just got to be too much, it just became, yep, yep, uh-huh, yep, uh-huh, uh-huh, whatever, yeah, uh-huh, okay. uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I was chasing squirrels in my mind. I mean, once you get to a point, if I'm not with you, I'm not going to catch up right, absolutely. kind of thing. So let's talk about another type of processing, um, just processing new information. So let's say that we were going to sit down and play a board game together, and I was going to explain to you how to play this game. Is that is processing new information difficult for you in the same way as processing verbal communication? Is that not as much of a struggle? How are you able to do that? Oh, for me, actually, it's more... Um reading things i have to read them twice sometimes three times okay just you know to make sure in my mind um i have this thing about three times if on the third time it says the same thing it must be what it says wow okay <laughs> so but um that doesn't mean i read everything three times right you know the real pertinent directions or something the associated stuff the descriptory stuff i'm okay with going through once and i'm good but my retention is gone the next day for about two weeks. Now, here's the weird thing. There's about a two to three week window where I can't consciously remember stuff. Mm -hmm. It'll suddenly show up in my long-term memory. Yeah, absolutely. We, I mean, that's oddly common like, <laughs> with FASD. It'd be like, wait a minute, I do know this mm -hmm. and I don't know where I came from. And it's like, oh, I learned that two weeks ago. But for the intervening period, I can't find that file right and i mean in one of the reasons for that might be because your brain has literally moved it to another area and what the next thing i'll ask you about is kind of, kind of immediate processing but i mean our brain everybody's brains what we're, what we're learning in the moment at some point our brain will sort into whether or not we need to remember it and then it literally moves the information from one part of our brain to another and I describe mm -hmm. to people, like, if you think of FASD sometimes as difficulties with, as the brain communicating with different parts of itself, long-term memories for a specific person, maybe you, would actually be easier to access once they've actually moved over to that section of the brain than kind of immediate short-term memories, which, you know, is mm -hmm. not the neurotypical experience generally. Like, we'll remember, if we're going to remember something, we'll remember it kind of through that whole process. I mean, then eventually we'll forget it as the longer time passes. But something mm -hmm. really important, I think, for parents to remember, and everybody's different on this. Not everybody has this kind of phenomenon. I don't want to call it a phenomenon because it's, you know, it's just how your brain works. But I've definitely noticed that pattern. And I actually, you wrote about it somewhere, I think probably in the group. And I was like, yes, that's what many of my clients are dealing with. And then that can be interpreted by some caregivers in certain situations as intentional lying. Like, because the kiddo, yep. they can't remember something from a few minutes ago. Well, then how can they remember something from a few months ago? And it's like, because that's how the yep. brain works. Exactly. And I actually, I just wrote something today and um, I was asked a, a question. What would you, you know, the, the one biggest thing you would want to tell caregivers and professionals is that you need to go to where the person living with FASD is. Mm -hmm. to, under, to get them to understand you, you need to understand them. Yep. How their brain works and when you teach 
to how their brain works, you'll see great, incredible results. Otherwise, you're wasting your breath because, again, once you know, you've lost that train of thought, we're not catching up again. You have to come back for right. us. Wow. And I'm, you know, it's one of the unfortunate realities of um, dealing with, again, um, in the vernacular, Swiss cheese brain, we call mm -hmm. it, uh, is that, you know, there are these hard and fast rules. And one of them is that um, we're like Maseratis or Ferraris, great looking sports cars. We're all, you know, souped up. We just look great. There's no starter. <laughs> yeah. And we can't do that. We need some. We need someone to give us that boost, the external brain, the mentor, um, a parent or a caregiver to give us that spark. And once we got that, we can run with mm -hmm. it. But that's what we need. Yeah. I I'm big with metaphors. Yeah. So I'm no, sorry. no, I like it. I think I I'm fascinated by it, and I think my listeners, especially the parents, will be as well. I think we. I mean, these are just such important things to remember. To take the metaphor another step, you know, living in day-to-day -day life for many of my clients, when the car doesn't start because there is no starter, we start to kick the car and punish the car for not working rather than mm -hmm. taking a step back and saying, what's going on here? And then how can, how can I do it? And I think that's really what drew me to FASD out of all the developmental disabilities, because I can work with all of them in Oregon and I have worked with all of them. But like my clients are constantly accused of intentional misbehavior. And I think that's what draws me to them is like, no, like let, I want to be their advocate. Mm -hmm. But I mean, hearing it from you is just really powerful. I'm it's great. I, I talk almost every day with other adults and I see the results of um, that stereotyping and those negative um, connotations being put on people. And it's horrible. Mm -hmm. It really is. And uh, we need to stop it. Actually. Yeah. We need people to understand because people are being hurt and they're being hurt for the rest of their lives. Right. And, and to take it, I mean, just exactly what you said. Um, and we just interviewed a researcher, Christy Petrenko, who did um, a study essentially on this very fact. So we know that not only we want to have the right mindset to prevent people with FASD from getting hurt, but when you have the right mindset, when you understand this is a brain thing, you actually come up with better ideas. You actually can help the situation. But if you're constantly thinking, mm -hmm. oh, they're being manipulative or they're just trying to get attention or whatever, they're just choosing not to be successful right now, then your brain as a caregiver does not think ahead. So it's, I mean, it's ultra important for a lot of different reasons. Um, last type of processing I wanted to ask you about is how are you in particular at, let's say you're in a, at a party and there's no overstimulation, so you're doing good on that front. It's not overwhelming. You're having a good time. But how are you at processing people's social cues? So if you were to start talking about something and they were to give you a look, are you able to kind of assess that in real time and then adjust your conversation, or do you struggle with that sometimes? Mm, well, I don't have an inside voice, I've been told. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, so sometimes I do, uh, tend to speak like that and, um, I've gotten, I've gotten pretty good at being invisible okay. through most of my life. Um, not speaking up and not saying anything. And now this has changed completely and I have to be very cognizant of that because I do speak to large groups of people. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
before it was more of a concern now because I tend to work on it a lot more um, I don't find it happens so much but I'm usually gotten pretty good at recognizing facial cues I did not always have that uh, w one of my weirdest memories is uh, uh, when I was about 15 or 16 I thought I was a tough little kid so I went to fight this guy he turned around he was so angry at me that have you ever seen the look of someone when they're really mad it's hilarious <laughs> I started laughing I got my clock clean because I picked a fight with this guy and when he turned around he was so angry looking and I just couldn't stop laughing wow. he beat the living tar out of mm -hmm. me because I can't recognize facial um, I don't know anger from fear from you know Sometimes it's hard to tell unless it's really exaggerated. You know, and so, and so just to, I want to point flag this for my audience here because most of the people listening to this will be neurotypical. We as neurotypical people are extremely sensitive, especially once our brains are developed when we're adults, to social cues. And somebody can raise their eyebrow a centimeter and we will pick up on it and depending on what's going on, adjust our behavior or address it or whatever. You know, some people... FASD and other developmental disabilities, they don't naturally pick up on these social cues. So I try to explain to my, like the neurotypical caregivers, nobody had to sit us down and really explain what each emotion, facial expression was. We knew naturally what it meant, but it takes practice for other people. And it sounds like for you, like it, it you have to be really cognizant of what each facial expression is given the situation that you're in. Would that be fair to say? Would you believe that um, when I started going public, I spent a few months learning how to smile? Wow. I didn't know how to smile. I knew how to like sort of pull my lips up, mm -hmm. but it, it was the most god-awful looking <laughs> smile I'd ever seen. Right. It was horrible. And I actually had to teach myself which facial muscles, muscles to use because, I mean, that's how basic our what we don't know is how big the gulf can be. I didn't actually know how to smile. And just to point out um, for my listeners, when RJ has to learn how to smile, that way he can rub us the right way. I mean, he's accommodating us at that point, right? And we're constantly talking about how we accommodate people with FASD. And really with any developmental condition, they have to constantly adjust to fit into the neurotypical world. Because really, I mean, if you, cause I'm assuming you felt you feel the emotion, but you just don't necessarily show the smile on your face. Would that be true? Like you, you still feel the emotions, right? It's not that you don't have, you're not happy. Or... Oh, absolutely. But if I don't think about actually doing it, I forget to pull the muscles mm -hmm. up in the front of my face. Um, I can feel perfectly happy, and you know, I've been called and by my own kids, stone face. Mm -hmm. um, People find that when they meet me, I'm very impassive looking. And it's like, I, I have to work not to do that. Because, and I don't want to make, you know, sort of draw something back. But Dustin Hoffman did a great job in Rain Man. Mm -hmm. The sort of, you know, passive, just non-changing expression. Mm -hmm. um, Tom Hanks uh, also did it with um, Forrest Gump. Right, yeah. That, you know... In essence, is what it can be like the impassive face, the cocked head, and it's just like, whoa, what's going on right. here? <laughs> yeah, you're so busy thinking and processing, you know, that's just another element to add on top of it. Mm -hmm. If a parent listening has a kiddo who is exactly like this, who doesn't necessarily show that, 
A part of me wants to say, sure, teach them how to smile and all that. But then a part of me wants to say, well, you know what? If RJ wants to talk to me and not have to worry about Nate's reaction, like, he shouldn't have to smile. Like, I don't want him smiling to impact what he's thinking. Like, I want him to just to get the words out that he wants to say. And if having to smile to accommodate Nate will take away from that, then I don't want that to happen. I just want to hear what RJ has to say. Um Oh, well, that's where uh, something like, like audio is great, but uh, right. uh, in society right now, today, you have to try and go with the flow as much yeah. as you possibly can. Yeah. And um, for 47 years, I was able to sort of hide. I was a news photographer, and as a news photographer, I could, I could throw temper tantrums and be angry about equipment that didn't work and stuff, and people would give me that lead. Right. Maybe in another job, I wouldn't have had that. But I was like the artistic type. Mm-hmm. But that'll only take you so far in life. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's it, a balance. It did, it did take me to Europe. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so it's definitely a balance. I just, um, you know, I want us to be, especially the parents, you know, this getting your kid to smile right is not necessarily the priority. But it definitely will be helpful as they interact, you know, in society who maybe is less understanding and, you know. It, yeah. It is sad but true, but yes. Um, aside from that, um, I can understand exactly what you're saying. It's it's too bad that people have to do that, but that's the world we live Absolutely. in. Absolutely. So, um, FASD has impacted you physically as well, and I know this is definitely an issue. Um, but because in my work, I focus so much on behaviors because I'm a behavior consultant. Um, I haven't really thought about this much, but can would you mind sharing how? alcohol exposure kind of has impacted your physical health? Okay. Um, well, physically, um, my, uh, my first operation was three weeks after birth Mm. for uh, a problem with my intestines. I'm not sure exactly what it was. They called it something, but I read it a long time ago. Anyways, I had an operation right after I was born. Um, that was the first thing. So I've always had problems with, um, my sort of intestines and things like that. Nothing major. Um, one of my legs is shorter than the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one, Actually, one side of my body almost looks like it belongs to someone else, and that includes half of my skull. There is uh, a real dysmorphology of my facial bones even um, to the point where my jaw is underformed and when my adult teeth grew and I had to get get a set removed before the wisdom teeth oh wow because there were too many not too many teeth the teeth were too big for my jaw okay so I had to get a, a row of teeth taken out before my wisdom teeth could come through and um, things like that um, I have a heart condition that was initially found when I was in the armed forces when I was about 17 or 18 but then disappeared up until I had a heart attack a year and a half ago. It suddenly popped up again. Um, But there are the other things too. Um, I don't feel my, my torso and trunk in the same way I hear other people do. I do not feel hunger. I don't know what that, what that means. Um, I can feel possibly empty or cold when my body is running low on fuel. Wow. But, I don't know what people describe as this this ravenous hunger thing because I don't get that. Um, 
I quite often can get bruises on my hips or my uh, chest or something and not know where they came from. Hmm. Um, the se sensation is very limited in that area, which explains why I had my heart attack that I was talking about a little while ago went on for four days before I finally got it checked out because I couldn't locate that it was my heart that was hurting. It was just something somewhere. Wow. That is... I mean, I think I hope that it's so clear to the parents listening to this podcast how important it is that we support advocates because, like, this information is just really helpful. I mean, yeah, like, I, I know what being hungry feels like. And then for me to try to imagine then being in your shoes, I mean, it's it's our brains just work so differently in some of these areas. Um, well, so, so, some people would assume it's an eating disorder, and it's actually not an eating disorder. Right. I do like food. I love the taste of food, but I just don't feel hunger. Right. So I forget to eat. It's not that I don't eat. It's like, oh, wow, it's like I haven't eaten since yesterday. Yeah, your brain doesn't prompt I... you that it's time to eat. Never. Wow. Never. Yeah, that can be really dangerous for people living on their yeah, own. Yeah, whereas I am rarely not thinking about what I can put in my mouth as far as <laughs> Wow, okay. Very interesting. Thank you. We're kind of uh, nearing the end of the interview here. If you had any advice, let's say we have a parent who th they happen to be listening to this podcast first. This is their first exposure to working with somebody with FASD and to listening to somebody with it. What would be any advice for things that they should immediately start to do for supports or strategies? What would be kind of starting steps? I would suggest reading anything and everything you can on understanding how brain function, both typical and non-typical, works, mm -hmm. um, and specifically work towards FASD um, understanding. Um, yeah. Because FASD is so specific an area you sort of need this background of general information to get sort of cognizant with the terms that we're all using. Absolutely. So, so a lot of this um, initial stuff is going to be difficult. There's a lot to learn, and I'm sorry that's difficult. But, you know, the important thing to remember is it's going to be okay, yep. but it's going to require understanding of a lot of different things before you get – you know, once you know the person and you know their stuff, it's like bing, bing, bing. Mm -hmm. But you have to be ready to interpret so many things as you get to this point because we don't always have the words to say right. what we are thinking or feeling. And sometimes it takes detective work. And that's, you know, you have to be ready to do that detective work yeah. and see those clues and work with them and see what they bring back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so knowledge, I mean, and that's definitely my approach. I think one of the nice things about my, about my work is that I'm fascinated with the human brain. And so in this work, I get to think about how everybody's brain works and our brains are just amazing things. I try not to geek out about it too much, but we, our brains just do so much. Part of my mm. ability to learn about my own brain is then to compare it to my clients. And you're right. I mean, there's so much information and I'm definitely working on my end to simplify things as much as possible. But ultimately, I've, I mean, I've been in situations where if some people aren't able to learn some of these basic concepts, you know, about 
what the neurodevelopmental de- model is, for example, and uh, with Diane Malbin trying differently rather than harder. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like if, if that's hard for people to understand, then it's going to be really hard for them to support somebody with an FASD. So hopefully this interview for, you know, if people are struggling, will help make that clear. I mean, I really think it has. This is great. Um, my, num- my number one comment about FASD, it's complicated. Yep. Absolutely. Um, it is, but um, that's what happens. And I hate to use a catchphrase when you have to shift a paradigm because mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you have to take a person's entire way of thinking yeah. and change that. And that is difficult. So it's a step by step process for people. And I see people on, who are, in, you know, getting it in different increments and levels. But the thing is, people are getting it Absolutely. and they're starting to understand. So I have a lot of hope for the future. We've seen some great changes over the last five years and I can't wait to see what happens in the next few. That's great, yeah. So let's talk about your projects now. Let's first talk about the Red Shoes Rock Project. How did that start and what's the purpose of that whole thing? Oh, well, when I started going out and doing uh, speaking, you know, I was thinking one day that there is nothing that sets me apart as a disabled person in any shape, way, shape, or form. As you said, I present well. Um, I have manners, and you know, I'm able to um, act well in a social situation, things like that. And I spoke well. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that you know, this I don't want to play um, the 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 victim or anything like that. So I was looking for something that would sort of um, signify, at least in my own mind, that I'm not the same, Mm -hmm. that there is something different. And I thought, you know, wearing a nice dressy suit with a pair of red running shoes (laughs) would be really hot. Yeah. And that's that's what I started doing. So uh, Jody Culp, she's an Mm -hmm. educator out of um, Minnesota and, uh, and an author, and she's just an incredible woman and a great friend. She picked up on that and was asking me about it. And we were talking about it. And I said, well, this is all about me being different. It's my sort of way of, you know, at least saying to myself when I'm sitting there waiting to go up, I can look down and say, you're not the same as anyone. You're not the same. This is about being different. So that was where that started. And she asked if, you know, I'd be willing to be spokesman if she said, you know, started a campaign about FASD education and support Mm -hmm. around you know, this way of showing that, um, you know, I don't wear necessarily uh, an armband or anything like that, but this is my way of showing that, you know, I live with FASD. So this last year, we had an incredible program. Um, We had 90 people Mm -hmm. who were willing to have their pictures um, shown with a little uh, description of their lives called um, FASD is real and so am I. Mm -hmm. And we just had incredible turnout with that. And then it was really, really well accepted. So Jody's doing a great job with that. Yeah, we'll link to all of that in the show description so my listeners can um, find out more information about that. That was such a great campaign. I hope, I'm hoping that you guys will do that again this September. Do you know if that's planned for something similar? Well, you see, I'm just the spokesman. What what Jody's doing now, she's got a couple of things in cool. in mind, cool, but cool. I'm, I'm pretty sure that she might be uh, wanting to do that one again because there was such a great response. Yeah, that was awesome. And then let's talk about, we 
talked about it a little bit before, but the Flying Without Wings Facebook group. How did that start? Flying with broken Sorry, wings, oh, my son. On my different page <laughs> notes here. Yes, flying with broken wings. My apologies. I'll link to it um, in the description as well. Um, there's a um, an FASD page that's been going for a long time in Canada called FAS Link, Fast Link, mm -hmm. and um, I started out there talking to people, and um, actually through talking to people found out that I knew something about FASD. This was way back when, just after I got my diagnosis and I was trying to find out stuff. And then all of a sudden I was answering other people's questions and it sort of evolved from there to learning about FASD in general and being able to talk about my experience living with FASD. And then it was like, I need a place to say this stuff mm -hmm. because there it's a very, very small, well, not a small population, but the answers are all individual. It's a listserv. So you got to go search for answers and things, and it's not really convenient. Mm. And so um, I was talking with a few friends of mine, and we thought about Facebook. And it just seemed to be the place to go because families use it. Right. Parents were using it. And it was like, who do I want to talk to? And uh, the, the basic fact is if my experience can prevent one other person from going through what I went through, it's worth it. Mm -hmm. And that was my mindset when I set out the group. In fact, the group is even, you know, this is really corny. I actually launched the group on February 14th. Mm. It's sort of, um, it's all about the love. Right. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So, yeah. And initially I had no idea what, what we were going to have. Um, I put a few files in there, wrote a few things, set it up. Uh, opened it up and all of a sudden trickle became a torrent and mm -hmm. uh, you know five years later we have over 3,000 members and a lot of them are constantly active yeah absolutely I, I, what I love about the group is that it really is a place for people to come when they are having difficulties and we have some parent groups for that and parents definitely use the group for that but it's, a, it's also for people with FASD. And I usually, I try to set out most of those conversations because I just enjoy reading what you guys have to say. And you guys, I mean, it's very quick. When somebody has an issue, they get responded to very quickly most of the time. Everybody's mm -hmm. so patient. It's just, it's a great atmosphere, especially for, for an online group. You know, those things can turn south quick. So mm -hmm. um, we'll definitely link to that in the description as well. Well, thank yeah, you. well, RJ, thank you so much. This has been a great interview. I definitely am confident that the parents listening and the caregivers listening will be understanding a little bit more about what's going on in the brain of the person that they're supporting. Thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been my pleasure. Well, everybody, I hope that you found that interview to be interesting um, and informative and hopefully helpful in understanding a little bit more about the person that you're supporting. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you like us on Facebook and that you follow us on YouTube by subscribing to our channel. If this podcast and our videos are helpful to you, please consider donating to us on Patreon.com. You can find links to all of these in the description of this episode. Thanks for listening.